0: Hello and welcome to Eyes on Success, a weekly program of information on the ever-changing world of accessibility. Now here are the hosts of this program, Nancy Goodman Torpey and Peter Torpey. Hello, I'm
1: Nancy. And I'm Pete. This week we'll be talking with a blind disability rights attorney. Over the past many years, the rights for the disabled and access for the disabled have significantly improved. However, As we'll see, there's still a long way to go. We'll speak with Scott
2: Labar about his experiences working for the National Federation of the Blind, running his own private law practice, and helping to negotiate the Marrakesh Treaty. But first for our tip of the week. This week's tip comes from Scott Labar.
3: It's very important that people be aware of what the law is and understanding uh, what their rights are, what there are great resources out there. There's, for example, uh, disability.gov. Uh, That's the uh, federal website with federal disability rights laws. But, of course, our NFB legal program page uh, helps folks a lot. And the only other thing I would say is, you know, if you find yourself in a situation where you think your rights are being violated because of your disability or for any other reason, Uh, It's very important to document what's going on, to make notes, to keep emails, to keep documents, because even though we all think we have a terrific, wonderful, crystal clear memory, we don't. And so it's very important to document what has gone on and to keep a record of things that have occurred.
2: Well, and people should remember that there are actually attorneys out there who are happy to provide advice. And if it comes down to it, you know, who specialize in this kind of law and can help you in the courtroom.
3: Absolutely.
1: Support for Eyes on Success is provided by...
2: Ira an app that remotely connects people who are
1: blind or have
2: low vision to trained agents for access to visual information. Details are available at
0: 1-800-835-1934. You are listening to Eyes on Success. 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 Let's start by meeting Scott and learning
2: about his experiences getting trained as an attorney.
3: Hello, I am Scott Labar, and I am a blind lawyer here in Denver.
2: And you've been blind since before law school, right?
3: Yeah, I you know, I went blind when I was 10 years old uh, in the fifth grade. Uh, I contracted a, a virus and it essentially ate away my retina and so forth. So, yes, I went blind when I was age 10.
2: And then were you mainstreamed for the rest of your public schooling?
3: I was. Uh, I went back to my you know, neighborhood elementary school and uh, progressed through the school system there in Woodbury, Minnesota, then went to St. John's University in Minnesota and then to the University of Minnesota Law School.
1: So I guess along the way you picked up skills like Braille and how to use technology to have access to material you needed access to?
3: Yeah. You know, when I went blind, I pretty much went totally blind. So I started receiving training and all the alternative skills right away. They gave me a cane and taught me orientation and mobility. I learned Braille uh, right away and, of course, was exposed to whatever technology We had at that time uh, in 1978. In one sense, the way I went blind was fortunate because uh, I got the skills uh, right away.
1: You know, that's interesting. I often talk about my own background. I was born with glaucoma as a kid in the 50s, and they didn't realize that could happen to kids. So although I could hold a book several inches from my nose at the time, I was considered legally blind. And I actually went to a school for the blind until I was in fifth grade. And later on, I was mainstreamed in public school and throughout uh, college and graduate school. But I consider myself fortunate to have gotten into kind of the system and learning those skills early in life.
3: Yes, absolutely. I I think it's good in the early years for blind children to get all skills they possibly can, even if uh, they have some uh, residual vision. That way, uh, they're prepared in the future if they lose more vision or are in situations where their vision isn't very helpful to them. So in some ways, I'm glad I never had to face those issues. I just, you know, I got the training that I needed uh, when I needed it.
2: Eyes on Success is made possible in part by our corporate partners. Underwriting pairs the impact of targeted marketing with the integrity of community goodwill.
1: Learn more by sending an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. This week's focus topic is Scott's work in disability rights law. I understand that you specialize in disability law. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into that field? What led you there?
3: When I was in college, I got uh, heavily involved in the National Federation of the Blind And I saw all of the various hurdles we were facing in the public policy and legal realm. And I thought maybe I would want to go to work in the field of law to uh, help with those civil rights uh, issues. And so when I was a junior in college, I did an internship uh, at a law firm and decided that I did like uh, law and consequently uh, did what I needed to do to get into law school and Uh, The rest is history, as they say. Um, I didn't know exactly at the time what I would do in law. uh, But as it turns out, my first job out of law school was going directly to work for the National Federation of the Blind in Baltimore. At that time, I did a lot of uh, legal work uh, and legislative work, mostly uh, going to Capitol Hill a lot and that kind of thing.
2: When you joined the NFB, that must have been around about the time that the ADA was being enacted. Did you have any involvement in that?
3: It was just after, uh, Nancy. The ADA was adopted in 1990. The first provisions of the ADA came into effect in 1992. Uh, I started working for the Federation in 93, uh, and so we were just dealing with the new Uh, sort of rollout of the ADA and what it would mean. And of course, at that time, we didn't have a lot of court decisions and a lot of law built up. So we really didn't know, you know, how the ADA would be interpreted.
1: It was all new.
3: Yeah, it was all new. So yeah, I I did that in 93 and 94. I came out here to Colorado uh, in 94. I worked for the uh, Colorado Center for the Blind in a variety of roles, including public policy and advocacy, and uh, to make a long story short, ultimately I got into my own law practice, and that was in 1998, Uh, and so I've had my own business since then. I do disability rights work, and I do a lot of that for the National Federation of the Blind. I also do employment law generally, and I've I've also gotten involved in uh, the realm of international copyright policy and uh, work. What was your
1: reception through law school, and what hurdles did you have to overcome?
3: My specific experience was pretty good. At the University of Minnesota, for example, where I went to law school, they had a, a you know a disability, a student services office uh, that would provide accommodations uh, when you requested them, and so you know that worked. Pretty Well, also, and I had access to recordings for the blind, which later became recordings for the blind and dyslexic and now is known as learning ally. And so I had a number of resources. Uh, I used human readers and so on and so forth. So I had pretty good access to materials. Now, the frustrating part was sometimes I didn't get my books (laughs) in a timely way. Uh, And that was kind of uh, hard to deal with. And thankfully, I was able to use readers pretty much as much as I needed to. Uh, The state agency was pretty liberal about giving me as many reader hours as I needed. So it it worked pretty well overall. I was fortunate in that I, I knew what I wanted. I knew how to get it, and I was able to receive it.
1: We've talked with several other blind lawyers on this show in previous episodes, and most of them indicated that they had a difficult time getting jobs with commercial law firms after school. Did you have any such problems or issues?
3: Absolutely. Uh, it, it's always been very challenging to find the same opportunities uh, in law as other lawyers who don't have any disabilities. And uh, for example, uh, at my law school, the University of Minnesota, is is a good law school, and large national and international firms come to us on our campus and do interviews of students. And I I remember very clearly going into these interview rooms and they noticed, of course, that I was blind and they just sort of freaked out. You knew right away that that particular interview just wouldn't go anywhere. Uh, And it it was very frustrating because uh, I, I was at a tier one law school. Uh, most of my friends would just basically send out their resumes and get multiple offers of employment. And I had to scrap and scrape and and really fight for opportunities. And I'm president of the National Association of Blind Lawyers. And it's still the case that uh, blind law students and, and legal professionals struggle much more to get the same opportunities in the legal field.
2: That is pretty much the same story we've heard from the other lawyers and it is really sad. You know, even they'd include in the story and I had top grades and still had trouble getting even one offer.
3: Well, yeah, as I said, I went to a very good law school and I did fine, uh you know, and and if we're, when my cited colleagues were getting multiple offers and I had zero, it was it was very frustrating. And as I say, it's changing a bit, for example, in the last decade or so, we've had two uh, blind people serve as uh, clerks on the Supreme Court. A little
2: while ago, you mentioned the National Association of Blind Lawyers. How many blind attorneys are there in this country?
3: We don't know the precise number. It's under a thousand. I would say between 500 and 800 people who are blind or visually impaired are practicing law in the United States. And that's out of the over one million plus lawyers total in the United States.
1: That's a lot of lawyers.
3: Yeah.
1: As someone who specializes in disability law, do you have advice for people pursuing this type of path who have a visual impairment?
3: First of all, uh, if you're going to go to law school and want to become a lawyer, it's okay to have an idea about what you want to do ahead of time, but don't be so wed to that that you aren't able to be flexible. Uh, The fact is, uh, in the disability rights field, for example, you know, are less than a thousand lawyers practicing in disability rights. uh, And so it's not a huge job market, (laughs) number one. Uh, And and number two, you know, you might find something in law school that you like more. So that'd be my first bit of advice. Uh, My second bit of advice would be do as well as you possibly can in law school, get a lot of practical experience in addition to the academic experience. And in in particular in the area of disability rights, uh, we have uh, an association now, it's called the Disability Rights Bar Association. We've got about 300 lawyers who specialize in the area of disability rights Uh, and practice on uh, the plaintiff's side. And um, I happen to be chair of the Disability Rights uh, Bar Association Board of Directors. So uh, I think that's a good organization to get associated with. You get a sense of what's going on in the area, and you can uh, meet other people who are practicing uh, in disability rights.
1: Well, and I guess the more people who are visually impaired who wind up in these fields and their sighted colleagues can see their success stories and how well things can go, that makes it easier for the next generation.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely, it does. Um, As I say, we're slowly changing uh, the landscape, and, and it's precisely because we're getting new and better opportunities all the time. And so we just have to keep moving forward. And maybe someday down the road, it'll be just as easy for a blind person coming out of law school to find a job as as somebody else.
1: When people come to someone like you with an access problem that they want you to deal with, my feeling is that often this doesn't necessarily end in litigation, that once all parties are made aware of the issues and possible resolutions that a lot of negotiation happens to solve the problem. Is that right, or what fraction of the time is that the way things turn out?
3: It's very rare that a case goes all the way to trial. Over 90% of civil actions are settled or dealt with in some other way long before a trial, Uh, so it's very rare if you go all the way to a trial with a jury or a judge or whatever. But it's very fair to say that in a lot of cases, you resolve them at an early stage. And then even when a lawyer is brought on board, you, you resolve it fairly early because people realize they just don't want to mess with the liability and the potential expense. You
2: mentioned that you work in the field of employment law. Can you give some examples of what that encompasses?
3: In the blindness arena, it entails everything from, you know, a failure to hire somebody based on uh, blindness, uh, a failure to uh, get promoted or be advanced in a career. And then, of course, cases where uh, somebody is terminated uh, because of blindness uh, and and a failure to provide uh, reasonable accommodations. Um, So. It's a whole range of issues.
2: We worked for a major corporation, Xerox, and we were both in corporate research for 25 plus years. And just as whenever Pete needed a Braille display or some other piece of adaptive equipment because he couldn't see, when I developed Carpal Tunnel, because I'd been programming computers too much, you know, they provided whatever I needed. And, you know, anybody needed anything, they were right there, even well before the ADA. Is this mostly smaller corporations that you run into problems
0: with?
3: No, not at all. In fact, uh, I would say that uh, the vast majority of my cases uh, over the years have been against uh, huge uh, corporations. So it sounds like Xerox was a unique Uh, employer and that you were rather fortunate uh, because it's the whole array of employers that discriminate on the basis of blindness. So, I mean, I'm I'm just I'm just thinking about, you know, the cases I've got going right now. One is a huge uh, health provider. One is a huge school district, uh, the federal government uh, and so on and so on. So, Uh, Believe me, even though some corporations are large, have a lot of resources, are rather sophisticated, it doesn't mean that they're rather sophisticated in the area of providing opportunity to employees with disabilities.
1: So when you're up against some of these larger companies in the manner that you're talking about, these presumably are not individual cases, but more systematic issues that happen throughout the corporation. Is that right?
3: It can be, uh, but often it, it starts with an individual, right? And so that's uh, the way the case begins. Uh, and then you, you push for more systematic changes. And you might have situations, of course, where, uh, you know, you've got multiple uh, employees with whom you're dealing. So it just, you know, it just sort of depends.
1: I wonder, after some of these issues are resolved like that, I would have the feeling that there's some kind of tension, you know, if you sue your employer and you want to stay there, is there some kind of lingering, you know, resentments that happen, or how easy is it for people to go back to normal and say, okay, we fixed the problem?
3: That is a rare circumstance. You know, the vast majority of these cases end up uh, in the person leaving, or in a lot of them, the person is already gone because the company has... Uh, terminated them. So reinstatement of employment, although that is a remedy that can be ordered by a court, uh, is very rare. You've you've hit upon a a good issue in that it's very rare to find circumstances where a person continues working at a, a, a corporation.
1: Well, I guess it's nice that we've done so well in having some of these laws in this country to protect people with access and other issues But I guess there is a long way to go, and it's not a perfect system yet.
3: Not at all. You know, uh, the ADA uh, and other similar laws have have done a great deal to provide opportunity. But one of the biggest barriers that still remains is the whole uh, employment arena. And, uh, you know, the most optimistic figures that I have uh, seen suggest that maybe about 35% of those who are blind uh, are competitively employed. So that's, you know, an unemployment rate still around 60, 65%. That is just, you know, now in in the U.S., the overall unemployment rate is what, around 4% or less. And to think of a situation where a whole population of people have an unemployment rate of 60 or 65% is just insane, uh, I think. Right. So, yes, we've got a long way to go, uh, and there's still a lot of stereotypes and prejudice out there. Uh, I, you know, I, I deal with it every day in the, in the cases that I'm handling.
2: We just talked about employment situations. What other kinds of cases are you often involved in?
3: Well, a lot of cases now, of course, deal with access to uh, technology and websites and making sure that we're able to compete in this information age, when you go on a, a web page and you can't access information because it's not constructed in an accessible way uh, or you open an app and you can't use it, uh, you know, it, it's, it's preventing you from accessing uh, whatever services or products uh, might be offered. But when the underlying technology we're trying to access is not built accessibly, then we're as shut out as we've ever been.
2: What other kinds of work have you been involved in?
3: Well, I've been involved in a lot of policy work, and I think the most notable thing in that arena that I've done and I've been working on over the last 10 years is working on something that has become what is called the Marrakesh Treaty to access published works for individuals who are blind, uh, visually impaired, or otherwise print disabled.
1: And that just recently got ratified through this country, didn't
3: it? That is correct. Uh, It it became fully ratified by the United States Senate in 2018. Uh, The implementing legislation was also passed last year. And then finally, earlier this year, in February of this year, 2019, Uh, the United States deposited its instrument of ratification with the World Intellectual Property Organization. Uh, So I've been working uh, on this treaty, as I say, for over 10 years, and I was uh, a negotiator uh, for the National Federation of the Blind. I've I've made (laughs) dozens of trips to Geneva and other countries working on this treaty, and and it's really uh, quite an achievement because it declares on an international level that we have a right to access uh, information and access it in an accessible way. Now, this is a copyright treaty, and the reason that it's a copyright treaty is in order to put uh, information into accessible formats, if you just copied something and put it into an accessible format, technically you would be violating the copyright of the creator. In the old days, if you will, Every time that we wanted to put a book into Braille or some other kind of accessible format, audio or whatever, you would have to ask the creator for permission to do so. And you can only imagine that that would take a long time or sometimes even uh, permission would be denied altogether.
1: We've had very different copyright laws in the U.S. versus what this Marrakesh Treaty does for the world. Perhaps you can describe some of those differences and how the U.S. copyright law, compares to what Marrakesh does. In
3: 1996, the United States passed a law called the Chafee Amendment, which said that if you're going to put a book into an accessible format and you're going to do that on a non-profit basis, you don't have to get the permission of the copyright holder to do that. Well, that was great for the U.S., uh, but ultimately only one-third of the world's countries adopted similar laws and we weren't allowed to exchange these accessible copies across international borders. So what the Marrakesh Treaty does is, first of all, those countries who sign on to it and have to create these exceptions and limitations in their copyright law. And secondly, it establishes the system to exchange accessible copies across international borders so that's what the Marrakesh Treaty does. It currently applies to over 80 countries in the world, and that number grows all the time.
2: I understand your life has been impacted directly by the Marrakesh Treaty and the issues it addresses.
3: Yes, absolutely. When I was in college, one of my original plans was to become a double major in the area of Spanish, along with my political science degree. And I had to give that up because ultimately I could not get my hands on books in Spanish that I needed. Uh, I could have if I had access to the collections in Spain and other Spanish-speaking countries, but I didn't. That would have been against international law. That's no longer the case because of the Marrakesh Treaty. Uh, And uh, as I was saying, I've spent over the last 10 years of my life working hard to get Uh, The Marrakesh Treaty uh, adopted on an international level and then uh, adopted here in the United States. Uh, I mean, I've literally spent thousands upon thousands of hours uh, doing work uh, in the area of this treaty.
1: Well, it's been a long haul, but it's great that finally got resolved and ratified by so many countries.
3: Right. And we got a lot more to go, but we're working hard. Great.
0: You are listening to Eyes on Success. 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 Success.
2: Now for this week's final item, how to learn more about disability rights law and how to
1: contact Scott Labar directly. So if people would like to contact you with questions, how would they go about that?
3: Sure. Well, uh, you can call me. Uh, My office number is 303 504 And you can always reach out to me via email at uh, Labar. that's S-L-A-B, as in basketball, A-R-R-E, at labarlaw.com.
2: And you mentioned a couple of other organizations during our conversation. Do you have contact information for um, the National Association of Blind Lawyers?
3: Sure. Uh, National Association of Blind Lawyers uh, is a division of the National Federation of the Blind. So, of course, you can find us through the NFB's website, which is nfb.org. And, you know, the nfb.org is a great resource for people. We have a legal program page off the main website where we give people resources to the laws and regulations that are applicable to them, but also news releases and other information about cases that we're working on. So that's a great resource. And I, I have a lot of other involvements. I'm also president of the NFB of Colorado. So there's our state webpage, which is uh, nfbco.org.
2: And what about the Organization of Disability Rights Attorneys?
3: Yes, uh, well, the Disability Rights Bar Association has a website, disabilityrightsbar.org. Uh,
1: And if you're looking for any of that contact information or the resources we talked about, go to our show notes at www.eyesonsuccess.net. That's it for show number 1926. Next
2: week on Eyes on Success, we'll be talking with Kim Loftus, who recently published a book entitled Dating in the Digital Age. We will talk with Kim about her book, discuss how the process works, what to expect, some special considerations for blind individuals, and a little bit about some of her own personal experiences. If you have any questions regarding something you've heard about on the show, or you'd like to share an idea for a future show, send an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net or call us
0: at 585-210-8094.